Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by His Word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more, nothing less. And we do it all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ for you. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We are on our last article of the Augsburg Confession church authority. This article brings up important questions that were there in the 16th century and are still there today. By what authority do our pastors say and do what they do? By what authority, and it even touches on this, does the government do what they do, what they say and do? Is it the people? Is it the boards, conventions, uh, uh, committees, uh, ribbon task force, whatever it might be? The Augsburg Confession ends bringing us back to the foundation of everything. The triune God, Christ, the word, and the sacraments. Preaching, teaching, that is our authority. So the question comes, what else do we need? Well, we're going to find out more about this, not only for the church, but also for our daily vocations. Open up your book of Concord and open up your Bible and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the uh, Augsburg Confession, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Greg Truey of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colcamp, Missouri. Pastor Truey, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, Pastor, we are going to be digging right in because this is a very important topic. We have quite a bit to cover, and you have a lot to share with us this morning. So um, we are on page 57 of the Concordia the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. And we end <coughs> the uh, Augsburg Confession with church authority. So I'll begin with a note, and then we'll just start taking off. Are you ready, Pastor? I am. All right, let's get to it. Church authority on the note. Article 28 expands on Articles 5 and 14. What authority or power do bishops have in the church? Over the course of centuries, bishops have become not merely church leaders, but political figures as well, claiming the right to govern both church and state and to make and enforce laws in both realms. By returning to a biblical understanding of the church, the Augsburg Confession clarifies that the true authority or power of bishops is the preaching of the gospel, the forgiving and withholding of forgiveness of sins, and the administering of the sacraments. The church is not to interfere in the government, but to keep its focus on the gospel. This article is a foundation for Lutheran understanding of the two kingdoms, God's work and rule in the world by means of the church, the kingdom or the the regiment of the right hand, and the state, the kingdom or regiment of the left hand. Bishops or pastors have authority in the church only to forgive sins in the name of Christ, to reject false doctrine, and to reprove those who uphold it, and to exclude persons who refuse to repent of open and manifest sin. This article, like the others, places the focus of the chief teaching of the gospel. We are justified by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, Pastor, as we look at the, the church authority, when I've been reading this and studying this, I wanted your thoughts, first of all, to kind of start us off on the right foot. But also, I think this article could be written very easily today as well. Mm. How do you want to start us off? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, the, note, the note says that this article is sort of bringing together Article 5 and 14, the ministry Article 5 and the Order of the Church. Um, I think we, we should also think that this, this article is, is bringing together Article 4 on justification and also Article 16 as well on civil government, right? Um, and it's sort of like coming back to this reality of justification is the center of the church and is what God wants to give to his people. How does he do it? And let's make sure we keep that straight so that the conscience of sinners 
uh, can be soothed through the preaching of the gospel, right? So we've, you know, the confession had to take on, you know, marriage of priests, distinction of meats, monastic vows, things that our hearers might might think of as maybe antiquated uh, subjects or maybe not as pertinent to their lives. But now we get back to something that every Christian conscience um, will find important because every Christian conscience struggles with the accusation of the law. He or she knows they, you know, they fall short of the glory of God. And, and, and so what is, where do I find the good news that soothes that, that, that appeases that so that I might have peace and comfort? And that's the point of this article. Where, where is that to be found and who is to be speaking that? And it's not necessarily who you think it is. It's not to be found necessarily in the state, but, but in the church. And so likewise, also, the church needs to keep that straight so she doesn't do other things that have been given to someone else. And that's an important distinction for us to make. And I would challenge you, our listeners, to pay very close attention to this article. I, and it's not the, not the best article in the Augsburg Confession. Don't quote me as that. But it is very important because, as Pastor said, this goes back to the main articles that we have focused on here in the Augsburg Confession. And a little bit of an announcement is, as Pastor brought up, justification in Article 4 in the Augsburg. He's also going to be our first guest on justification in the apology. So hold on tight. It's coming. It's coming almost right around Christmas time. So just be, I mean, he gave you a little bit of, I think he was actually trying to do that, trying to insert yes. that and yes, say, absolutely. by the way, you know. <laughs> Anyways. plug. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's very important for us is, okay, why, why do I even go to church? You know, why, why is the church even there? Why is your congregation placed at that, in, in that community? And what's the purpose? You know, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I just really encourage you to consider that and ponder that and also to uh, keep that fixed in everything that you do in your own congregation. So we are on page 58, and let's start digging in. We have quite a bit to cover, so we'll read portions at a time. Um, and we uh, look forward to uh, um, going through this. So we are at number one on page 58 of Article 28, Church Authority. There's been great controversy about the power of the bishops, in which some have terribly confused the power of the church with the power of the state. This confusion has produced great war and riot. All the while, popes claiming the power of the keys have instituted new services and burdened consciences with church discipline and excommunication. But they have also tried to transfer the kingdoms of this world to the church by taking the empire away from the emperor. Learned and godly people have condemned these errors in the church for a long time. Therefore, our teachers, in order to comfort people's consciences, were constrained to show the difference between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. They taught that both of them are to be held in reverence and honor as God's chief blessing on earth, blessings on earth, because they have God's command. Our teacher's position is this, the authority of the keys, Matthew 16, or the authority of the bishops, according to the gospel, is a power or commandment of God to preach the gospel, to forgive and retain sins, and to administer the sacraments. Christ sends out his apostles with this command, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And in Mark chapter 16, Christ says, Go proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This authority is exercised only by teaching or preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments, either to many or to individuals according to their calling. In this way are given not only bodily but also eternal things, eternal righteousness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. These things cannot reach us except by the ministry of the word and the sacraments. As Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. Therefore, the church has authority to grant eternal things and to exercise this authority only by the ministry of the word, so it does not interfere with civil government any more than the art of singing interferes with civil government. I apologize. I, I messed up there because I didn't think they actually said the word singing right there. Anyways, um, so, Pastor, yeah. what is the church's authority? The church's authority 
is to preach the gospel, to forgive sins, to exclude those unrepentant sinners from the communion, the Holy Communion, uh, and to uh, rebuke false teachers. That's the authority of the church. You want me to say more than that? <laughs> well, I've, I've, we have a lot more to go through. So yeah, is, yeah, it yeah. Really, is it really that simple, you think? It, well, <clears throat> now, yes, it is that simple. And I think it's important <laughs> to have a simple definition so that we can actually understand what God has given the church and her pastors to do, right? As opposed to turn, spinning our wheels and, and, and spending our time getting involved in all kinds of things that take us away from those duties that are essential to the office. Now, let me say this to our, to our hearers, to our listeners. I don't think we can understand this article apart from the concept of office and duty. And, and this is actually consistent. You've already studied uh, the small catechism, the table of duties, right? So in the table of duties, uh, we, we have certain holy offices that are instituted by God. And we have the biblical passages that describe what are the duties that God has attached to those offices. So it is kind of important for us to understand that, that we believe that God has actually instituted the office of the bishop, the office of pastor, with certain duties attached to it, and at the same time has also instituted the, the, the civil magistrate, you might say, the, the civil authority, and has attached certain duties to it. And where we understand that rightly, there will be good order. The people in the church will be well served. Likewise, the people in society would then also be well served by those who occupy the civil offices. And so defining it simply as the forgiveness of sins, the preaching of the gospel, uh, pointing out false teachers and excluding the unrepentant from the Holy Communion is actually quite helpful. Now, that doesn't mean that's an easy job or a simple task. The definition is simple so that we know what we're supposed to do, but then going about doing that is a very difficult task. And, and this is way, maybe way too simple, but just so we clar have clarity, is who gives us authority to do the things we just mentioned? Yeah, God, God gives this authority, right? So this is why uh, God in Christ gives this authority. This is why they cite John 20, right? So as the Father sent me, even so now I am sending you and receive the Holy Spirit so that if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. The office of the keys given to those whom Christ has sent, the apostles. But then the apostles also, right, taught that they ought to ordain men in every place through the laying on of hands to, to, to carry on this work of ministry, right? And, and so this task of forgiving sins and administering the sacraments is a, is a divinely instituted office given by God in Christ Jesus for the sake, you've already covered this, for the sake of sinners having justifying faith. And that's our task. And so to, to stay sort of focused on that task is a service to the church and to the world, while our governing authorities have been given other important tasks that are rather important for society as well. And we're going to speak to that our next our reading. The why is it? Let's just let's just call it what it is as we look at this article. Why is it so hard? Because those are just. I mean, you said like three things. That's it. <laughs> why is it so hard for us to stay focused on those those few things that we've listed of authority? Oh man. Um, well, did God really say? <laughs> uh, right so like the instructions that the lord gave to adam which he then gave to his wife eve 
by the way he carried out this authority of giving her the eternal word of the Lord as her husband and pastor already in the garden. That's how she knew what trees to eat from. She wasn't there when God gave that word. So already in, in creation, we can see that God has has given this authority to the head of the family. We could talk about the family, but that's not what this article is about, but also to the to the to the pastor. Right? And so so the temptation of the devil is to doubt that that that's sufficient, right? That was Eve's temptation. God's holding holding out. His word isn't enough, right? And so I think the church and her pastors are given to this temptation to think that, well, maybe there's more that we could be doing. We can be helping God along. The word of God is insufficient. This is a, this is a main temptation, and it's not unique to our day, right? This was the enthusiasts. This was their temptation, right? To think that the Holy Spirit needed help, that the Word of God wasn't enough for him to use to accomplish the mission of God, to plant justifying faith in the hearts of sinners. And so, you know, so we are tempted to busy ourselves with all kinds of other tasks, and the church is distracted from the things that actually accomplish God's purposes. And, and so, you know, we busy ourselves with, uh, you know, committee work, uh, you know, bylaw, you know, we, we could, the list could, is endless. And, and, and I would, I would say if you, if you have pastors listening to the show, you know, this is our temptation is to think about our week and, and, and how much time we spend, you know, planning agendas for meetings or something like that. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it might be good work. Uh, there was a distinction of, of uh, beneficial work and essential work. It might be good work, but it's work that you don't have to be ordained by God to do it. Um, but we have, but pastors are put into an office that has been given for specific purposes. And so we, we want to sort of resist the temptation to busy ourselves with, with a work that is not giving people the word of God, right? This is why in Acts 6, they, they found deacons so that the apostles could be busy with the work of the word. And I think we have lessons to learn. And, and, and this article helps us keep that as our focus. It's very important, too, as we speak of this, that we also speak of the civil rulers. And that's what the next section is that we will cover. And we don't want to get too deep into these weeds. I think it's relatively simple. And like just like it is with the authority for the church, it gets very complex very quickly. So we, what we want to do today is to be very simple in our, exert, our a proclamation of what we believe, of what God does and works in the world. So I encourage you, our listeners, to really look at Luther's understanding of two kingdoms. We'll dig into it a little bit today, but also it's a fascinating reality and shows us why we are the way we are as Lutherans and why what, what scripture we believe teaches us and how we are to be involved in the civil life. So we are on number 11 on page 58, and it begins uh, number 11 for civil government. For civil government deals with other things than the gospel does. Civil rulers do not defend minds, but bodies and bodily things against obvious injuries. They restrain people with the sword and physical punishment in order to preserve civil justice and peace, Romans 13. Therefore, the church's authority and the state's authority must not be confused. The church's authority has its own commission to teach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. Let it not break into the office of another. Let it not transfer the kingdoms of this world to itself. Let it not abolish the laws of civil rulers. Let it not abolish lawful obedience. Let it not interfere with judgments about civil ordinances or contracts. Let it not dictate laws to civil authorities about the form of society. As Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. Also, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Paul also says, our citizenship is in heaven. And weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is how our teachers distinguish between the duties of these two authorities. They command that both be honored and acknowledged as God's gift and blessings. 
if bishops have one authority of the state, is not because they are bishops. In other words, it is not by the gospel's commission. His authority is an an authority they have received from kings and emperors for the purpose of administering the civil affairs of what belongs to them in society. This is another office, not the ministry of the gospel. Pastor, what is the authority um, and the role or duties of civil rulers and civil government? Yeah, good. It's the authority of the sword, um, which is to establish laws to protect their citizens by punishing lawbreakers, those who do evil. <laughs> and, and it is uh, it, essentially that, that simple. Um, at least that, that's the view of, of this article, right? And, and how, how would you break this down? Someone says, well, pastor, I want, you know, I, I, I love being in my church. I, I love being involved in my government in America without getting too much into like American history or so forth. How would you give a, a simplistic uh, combine those? We've talked about them separately. How would you talk about this is what the church does, this is what the government does, and uh, especially as Lutherans when we talk about two kingdoms. How would you break that down for someone? Yeah, I like, I like to use sort of an analogy of the family, right? And I think this is helpful. And then we'll get to like how that affects the pastor. But, you know, I'm a father. I have six kids. And when my, my kids sin, you know, my son is talking back to me or my daughters are scrapping with one another or whatever the case might be. I don't, I don't get, I don't have the authority of the sword to go and to discipline them and put them in prison. That would be, hmm. that would be ridiculous, right? Like we can see it. It's so clear, right? Um, but, you know, in society, God has given authority to the, to the civil realm um, to have the sword. And now, you know, not just the sword, right? The sword means, right, the force that is necessary to put down the evil that will do damage to society. So if, that might mean a B-2 bomber. Okay, It might mean a badge and a sidearm, right, for the police officer. It, it can mean many di different things in how that plays out, but the state or the civil authority has been given by God to use force in order to protect society when evil sort of abounds or when evil occurs. The pastor likewise. So now back to the church, right? What is my tool? When someone is in my study or uh, is confessing they've, you know, relapsed, they've done harm to their family, they've cheated on, you know, whatever cheated on their taxes, whatever their sin is that they're confessing me, confessing to me. What is my tool? What has God given me to give to them when they're making that confession? Not a B2 bomber. I don't get to give them a timeout and send them to a, a room we have reserved here at the parish hall for a 37-minute timeout. I give them the forgiveness of sins. I absolve them. I give them the comfort of knowing that Christ was sent by the Father to atone for that sin that they've just confessed. That sin too. Um, now, if I have someone in my office who's impenitent, who's who's not confessing their sin, who's choosing to be, you know, to remain in their sin and deny the word of Christ, well, then I have an obligation to remind them that their sins will be held against them, that I, I cannot give them the forgiveness of sins. That's the other key, right? To exclude unrepentant from the communion. But I don't, again, have the, have the sword to use against them. My sword is the word of God, the law and the gospel applied to a person based upon his or her confession, right? That's my tool. 
and the state has been given a different tool. So in paragraph 13, right, when it says that the church should not break into the office of another, what it's encouraging us to do is, 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 is understand the duties that God has given to the church, the duties that God has given to the, to the state and her authorities, and just trust that the way the Lord has organized that is good and to receive that and not covet what God has given to another. Not try to take for ourselves the, the authority of the sword, but use the authority of the Spirit in the Word of God. And and so to keep that straight is, is pretty important. And I want to get more to that, but we need to take our break. We are studying church authority from the Augsburg Confession, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are studying what God's Word has to say concerning church authority, and also we're talking a little bit about civil authority as well with Pastor Greg Truey of Trinity Lutheran Church in Cole Camp, Missouri. I want to keep plugging along as we are on page 59 of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, on uh, page 59 on paragraph 20. And it continues to speak about this difference of civil and church authority. Number 20. Therefore, when a question arises about the bishop's jurisdiction, civil authority must be distinguished from the church's jurisdiction. Again, the only authority that belongs to the bishops is what they have according to the gospel, or by divine right, as they say. For they have been given the ministry of word and sacraments. They have no other authority according to the gospel than the authority to forgive sins, to judge doctrine, to reject doctrines contrary to the gospel, and to exclude from the communion of the church wicked people whose wickedness is known. They cannot exclude people with human force, but simply by the word. According to this gospel authority, as a matter of necessity, the divine right congregations must obey them from, for Luke 10.16 says, The one who hears you hears me. But when they teach or establish anything against the gospel, then the congregations are forbidden by God's command to obey them. Beware of false prophets, from Matthew 7. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one who we preach to you, let him be accursed, Galatians 1. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. The authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down, 2 Corinthians 13. The canonical laws also command this, and Augustine writes, Neither must we submit to Catholic bishops if they, chance to, if they chance to err or hold anything contrary to the canonical scriptures of God. If the bishops have another, an, any other authority or jurisdiction in hearing and judging certain cases as of matrimony or of tithes, they have the authority only by human right. If the bishops do not carry out their duties in these areas, the princes are bound even if they do not want to, to dispense justice to their subjects in order to maintain peace. So Melanchthon continues to kind of break down the differences, not only uh, scripturally, but also historically, as we look. Um, what are some important aspects that, that he tells us? Yeah, well, again, you know, he he repeats that, that the bishops have no other authority than those those simple things, right? Forgive sins, judge doctrine, reject doctrines contrary to the gospel, and exclude from the communion of the church wicked people whose wickedness is known. But then he says this, they cannot exclude people with human force, which, which is to say 
the pastor is only authorized to say and to do what the scriptures have given him to say and to do. So this was the problem with the Pharisees. This was the problem with Judaism, right? They had added to the faith that was given to Abraham and handed down, right? And that that was, they did not have the authority to do that. And so we, we do not get to decide how to, you know, we're going to exclude people from the communion because they root for the Chicago Cubs and not the St. Louis Cardinals, right? <laughs> that would be by human force. Even Cubs fans can be admitted to the Holy Communion, you know? Uh, that would be something I would have made up, but not the word of God. And so then it says, you know, so that if the pastor is is saying and, and, and discharging his duties according to the word of God, the congregation must obey him. The one who hears you hears me. But if the pastor is teaching or establishing something that the scriptures haven't established or that the gospel doesn't give, then the congregations are forbidden from obeying them. They must not obey that man, the pastor, right? He is a false prophet, right? His teaching is, is false. And, and so this is, this is kind of important that as, as pastors, we, we must sort of remember that we are only given to say what God has given us to say in the scriptures. And, and, and this plays out in places like a Bible class, right? Um, where the scriptures have clearly spoken on a subject. And sometimes our people are asking questions because they don't understand and they want to seek understanding. And that's great. But sometimes people will ask a question as if it's an open question. And we might today come to a different answer than the church has historically come to. Mm. And so like all of a sudden this week in Bible class, we're going to, we're going to sort of decide that um, the body and blood of Christ aren't really present. Right. How, you know, and if we're asking that kind of question, well, in fact, the pastor is restricted to only teach what God has given him to teach. And he's not allowed. He's not authorized to say, no, the body and blood of Christ are not present. He can only teach what God has given him to teach. And that's, that's good for the church so that the people have some assurance that what they will hear from the pulpit will be what the word of God gives, right? And also, there's an accountability to the pastor. He, he's not able to go and invent new teachings. And, and, and that then gets into the next part in terms of ceremonies and other things that the bishops at that time were instituting and demanding, even though the scriptures didn't demand it. And it's important for you, our listeners, to just think about how this relates to the church today. Um, because there's a lot of times we'll get very, very upset about something that the scriptures have nothing to say about, or they say something completely opposite of what you wish. So, for example, like Pastor used with communion and the question of who partakes of communion. Well, the question is not, um, well, I like that individual, therefore they should have communion. The question is, what does scripture have to say? You know, it talks about repentance and faith and wanting a new life and understanding what's actually happening when they receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, forgiveness, life, and salvation. So those are the kind of questions need to ask. Not, I really like that guy and he's the same political party as me, or I like this gal because of, of, of you know, the way that she treats me and my children or something. I mean, it comes down to what do you believe, teach, and confess. And think about a lot of things, and for your own reflection, that we have a tendency to get really riled up about and we don't even open the Bible. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about church authority. Pastor, anything else you want to add? Like you said, we get to ceremonies here very quickly. But anything else you want to highlight before we move on? Um, no, I think, I think anything I would add is really pushing us towards the next section. So let's just Got take it. it up there. Let's get yep. to it. We're on page 59, uh, number 29. And, and reminder to our listeners, we'll be reading quite a, quite a bit of this. Uh, excuse me, 30. We're going to go to 30. 
30 all the way to 52. So buckle up. Here we go. Here comes the confessions. There is also a dispute about whether or not bishops or pastors have the right to introduce ceremonies in the church and to make laws about meats, holy days, and grades, that is, orders of ministers, and so on. Those who say that the bishops do not have the right refer to the testimony of Christ in John chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. They also refer to the example of the apostles who commanded the Christians abstain from blood and from things strangled, Acts 15. They refer to the Sabbath day as having been changed to the Lord's day, contrary to the Decalogue, and they understand it. In fact, they make more of the supposed change of the Sabbath day than any other example they can think of. They say that the church's authority is so great that it can even it has even done away with one of the Ten Commandments. But this, on this question, for our part, as we have shown earlier, we teach that bishops have no authority to decree anything against the gospel. The canonical laws teach the same thing. It is against scripture to establish or require the observance of any traditions for the purpose of making satisfaction for sins, or to merit great and grace and righteousness. When we try to merit justification by observing such things, we cause great harm to the glory of Christ's merit. It is quite clear that by such beliefs, traditions have almost multiplied to an infinite degree in the church, while at the same time, the doctrine about faith and the righteousness through faith has been suppressed. Gradually, more holy days were made, fast appointed, new ceremonies and services in honor of saints instituted. Those responsible for such things thought that by these works they were meriting grace. So the penitential canons increased. We still see some traces of this in the satisfactions. Those who establish such traditions are acting contrary to God's command when they locate sin in foods, days, and similar things. They burden the church with bondage to the law as if there needs to be something similar to the services commanded in Leviticus chapters 1-7 through in order to merit justification. They say that Christ has committed the arrangement of such services to the apostles and bishops. They have written about the law of Moses in such a way that the popes have misled to some degree. This is how they burden the church, by making it a mortal sin, even if nobody else is offended, to do manual labor on holy days, or to skip the canonical hours, or that certain foods dirty the conscience, or that fasting is a work that appeases God. Or they say that, in a reserved case, sin can only be forgiven by the person who reserved the case, even though canon law speaks only of reserving the ecclesiastical penalty, not the guilt. What was given by the bishops to the right of, to lay these traditions on the church, by which they snare consciences? In Acts 15, Peter forbids us from putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 that authority given to him was for edification, not for destruction. Why do the adversaries increase sins with their traditions? There are clear testimonies that forbid creating traditions in such a way to suggest that they merit grace or are necessary for salvation. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on what you question in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, and later, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, Colossians chapter 2. Also in Titus chapter 1, he openly forbids traditions with these words, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people and turn away from the truth. In Matthew 15, Christ says of those who require traditions, let them alone, they are blind guides. In verse 13, he rejects such services. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. If bishops have the right to burden churches with infinite traditions and to snare consciences, why does Scripture so often forbid making and listening to traditions? Why does it call them teachings of demons? Did the Holy Spirit warn of these things in vain? Therefore, ordinances instituted as though they are necessary or with the view that they merit grace are contrary to the gospel. 
Therefore it follows, it is not lawful for any bishop to institute and require such services. It is necessary that the doctrine of Christian freedom be preserved in the church. In other words, the bondage of the law is not necessary in order to be justified, as it is written in the epistle to the Galatians. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery. It is necessary for the chief article of the gospel to be preserved, namely that we obtain grace freely by faith in Christ and not by certain observances or acts of worship devised by people. I'm going to let you talk here, Pastor, for a little yeah. while, but talked about ceremonies, and I think they very clear in what Melanchthon says. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I think the last paragraph is a good place to start looking back at this whole section. Uh, so it's, remember, listener, it's necessary for the chief article of the gospel, justification, to be preserved, that we obtain grace freely by faith in Christ and not by certain observances or acts of worship devised by people this is an extended section in the article that's helping the elder or the pastor the bishop who is given this god-given authority to to preach the gospel forgive sins to make sure he understands what is included in that and what is not included in that and so we have a distinction between traditions that are God-given and traditions of man. This is the this is the tradition. This is the, the, the familiar passage that your listeners will have in mind where Jesus rebukes uh, the Pharisees because they're treating as divine the traditions of man and forsaking the word of God, right? And so so we want to be careful not to require or to think that it is necessary for salvation or that it would merit God's grace, something that man has created, instituted, or established. Those are the traditions of man. They can be helpful. They can be good and proper for a time. They can be helpful, but they can also go away. But the things that God himself has instituted, established, created and given, those remain and are to be handed down. And those are the things, those are the only things that the bishop or pastor must insist on, right? So he must preach the gospel. He must forgive sins. He has no choice. He, he must do that. That's a tradition that must be continued and handed down from one generation to another. But um, the canonical hours that the bell would ring every three hours and, and that we would gather to pray another office every three hours. It, it was, it, it may be good, it may be pleasing, it may edify, but it isn't demanded in scripture. And so it can't be demanded by the pastor, by the bishop of, of the people of God. And we cannot think that those who engage in those practices are meriting God's grace by doing that. And that's the distinction here. So we want to we want to make sure we understand what are the things that God himself has established that must continue in the church and they're given to the to the office and are the duties that must be continued and what are the things that can come and go but can't be required. And I think that's a helpful way to understand this section. And it is quite expansive going back and forth as we continue to think about, okay, what authority do we have and what don't we have? Because it kind of goes like this. Um, okay, all right, we know what the church does. We know what the government does. Now let's go back to the church and say, okay, what authority do you actually have? Now, Pastor, is there any very simplistic, I don't want to cause any controversy, simplistic <laughs> thing that we do in the church they were like, okay, that is maybe for good order um, for the church, but it's not required. Um, any examples you want to share with us? A voters' assembly. <laughs> um, there you go. That lay works. elders. <laughs> uh, a council with with boards and committees. There, there is no God-given set of bylaws that a 
that a congregation must have to know that he that that she is sort of an orthodox Christian congregation. So it's become so common in our circles to have, you know, these six, seven, nine men who are elders, right? And and in fact, the term can be confusing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what they do, uh, how they serve, how we think of them, maybe we have elders, maybe the church decides we have other servants in the church that that help out in the congregation, but they're not required. Um, the next section, we'll get into Lord's Day, Easter, Pentecost, the Sabbath, ceremonies, you know, the ch- whole church year, you know, and, and I had, you know, the fact that we, that many of our listeners will remember a time that confirmation always took place on Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. right? Good. I mean, that was good for a time. There was a historical reason for that, right? But it's not required. And there may be situations that demand us to, to think that through and say, maybe maybe Palm Sunday is not, not the best time to have that ceremony. The, the, the ceremony of confirmation itself is a man-made tradition. Is it good to have Christians confess the faith before God? Absolutely. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my heavenly Father. But the rite of confirmation, you won't find it in the scriptures. That doesn't mean it's bad, but it needs to be kept in its place, and it must not master us. We must master it and use it to serve. And if it doesn't serve well, we must tweak the situation and use it accordingly, but to require it, to think that the day of my confirmation, I merited some measure of God's grace is to confuse the gospel, right? And and, and we can't do that, right? Well, and there's many other examples that we have. So we have to check our own hearts and check our own, what does the scripture have to say? And to be fully understanding of what the main thing is and what authority our churches have. So let's dig into some of those other examples. We have just over 10 minutes left in our time today. We are on page 61, um, number 53. What then are we to think of the Sunday rites and similar things in God's house? We answer that it is lawful for bishops or pastors to make ordinances so that Things will be done orderly in the church, but not to teach that we merit grace or make satisfaction for sins. Consciences are not bound to regard them as necessary services and to think that it is sin to break them without offense to others. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul concludes that women should cover their heads in the congregation. And in 1 Corinthians 14, that the interpreter should be heard and ordered in the church and so on. It is proper that the church should keep such ordinances for the sake of love and tranquility, to avoid giving offense to another, so that all things be done in the church in order and without confusion. It is proper to keep such ordinances just as long as consciences are not burdened to think that they are necessary to salvation, or to regard it as a sin if they change without offending others. For instance, no one will say that a woman's, woman sins who goes out in public with her head uncovered, as long as no offense is given. This kind of ordinance in the church is observing the Lord's Day, Easter, Pentecost, and similar holy days and rites. It is a great error for anyone to think that it is by the authority of the church that we observe the Lord's Day as something necessary instead of the Sabbath day. Scripture itself has abolished the Sabbath day, Colossians 2. It teaches that since the gospel has been revealed to all ceremonies of Moses can be omitted. Yet because it was necessary to appoint a certain day for people to know when they ought to come together, it appears that the church designated the Lord's Day, Revelation 1, for this purpose. This day seems to have been chosen more for an additional reason, so people might have an example of Christian freedom and might know that keeping neither the Sabbath nor any other day is necessary. So Pastor Rick continues here to speak about different examples. And I love at the end in in, uh, number 60 where it says Christian freedom, which we know can be very much so abused. Um, Your thoughts as we look at these different ordinances and Christian freedom. 
Yeah, I, I, I think this, this section actually begins to deal with the reality <laughs> that is quite difficult, that when you have a bunch of Christians forming together in a congregation, decisions have to be made. What time are we going to, what time is the service going to be held? Are we going to have Sunday school or Bible class before or after the divine service? Are we going to even have Sunday school? Yes, I have Sunday school. Let the hearer understand. Okay. But right. Uh, what time are we going to have meetings? Do we have four quarterly voters assemblies? If we have voters assemblies, do we have a monthly? These are all decisions that need to be made. And there are times that a bishop or a pastor simply decides some of these things. But if he decides these things, he can't lord it over them or think that, you know, uh, this is a God-given decree that the divine service must always be at 9 a.m. and we can never meet at any other time. In fact, we might have to institute a second service on another day of the week, and we're free to do that. That's the Christian freedom we have. But this is difficult. This is quite difficult, and it requires wisdom on the part of those who occupy the office of pastor so that we don't abuse our authority or misuse it. And, uh, you know, to, so to have these kind of conversations open, openly with the congregation, uh, so we think these things through and make these kind of decisions in a way that doesn't um, make that doesn't burden consciences, right? And, and, and maybe there's more to say about this. So follow up on, on those comments. Yeah, and so, Pastor, that's very well said, because as we look at this, there's so many uh, parts to look at when we discuss such these topics, because you have this reality, a common cry that we should have in the churches, this is not a salvation issue. Uh, we are talking about good order, and then for the body of Christ to come together and say, what is a, a good way to have good order? And at the same time, to ask this question, which is very much so an important one, that we as pastors uh, need to, to continually point um, our congregations to, is what do, we, what do we confess by what we do? So when you have a congregational meeting, what does it say that you don't even pray? Um, what does it say that you are, are meeting instead of Bible study, for example? Mm -hmm. um, so is voters meeting required by scripture? No. Um, but what is it telling people when you have it? Let's say you even have it besides a worship service. I mean, what are you telling people by having these practices? Is that for good order or is it something else? Is it for convenience because of the Packers, Vikings game, whatever it might be? that we do have to ask that question, what is the church's authority and what are we confessing by what we do? Which we could talk about all day. That could be a long, long conversation. So let's do this, Pastor. Give me about a minute here if you have more words to say before we finish out the rest of this uh, article. Yeah, good. So, you know, I think it, it does it does focus our attention sp more specifically to sort of the rites of Sunday or the ceremonies that we do in God's house. Right. And, and I, I do think we just need to say this. That the pastor is in a fatherly office given by Christ to care for the flock. And he he has been given a, a sort of a. A task that is impossible to carry out in a way that will please everyone. Just like it's impossible for dad to please all of his children. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I chose to go to Culver's. Well, Someone wanted to go to Wendy's, right? But that he should remember that the choices he makes, right? Is he going to wear cassock and surplus? Is he going to wear an alb? Or is he going to put a chasuble over the alb? You know, those are three different, you know, he could make three different choices there. And some people would be happy or some people would not be happy depending on what choice he made. But finally, he's in the office, has been given the authority to make that choice, but he cannot act as if that choice is a God-given one, right? And so if, if that choice were to cause a burden of conscience, he must be willing to say, it doesn't matter. I'll sacrifice the chasuble or I'll put a chasuble on, right? So that the, where, where the body of Christ has, 
has a difference of opinion on sort of how we should conduct the service or how how much ceremony to, to use or whatever the case might be, those differences should not be allowed to sever the unity that we have in our confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must be willing to bear with one another and be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that goes both ways. So that just as children are given by God to receive their father's care, so also the congregation is given by God to receive their pastor's care. And he's well aware of that. And he needs then to also discharge that with this clear distinction in mind. We read the rest on page 61 of article 28. These are monstrous debates about changing the law, ceremonies of the new law, and changes of the Sabbath day. They have all sprung from the false belief that the church, there must be something similar to the services set forth in Leviticus, and that Christ has commissioned the apostles and bishops to come up with new ceremonies necessary for salvation. The errors crept into the church when the righteousness that comes through faith was not taught clearly enough. Some debate whether or not keeping the Lord's day is not a divine right, but similar to it. They prescribe to the extent in which the lawful work on holy days. What else are such disputes, even traps for the conscience? Even when they try to modify the traditions, nobody will understand the modifications, as long as the opinion remains that these traditions are necessary and must remain. There the righteousness of faith and Christian freedom is not known. In Acts 15, the apostles commanded to abstain from blood. Who observes this now? Those who choose to eat blood and do not sin, and for even the apostles themselves wanted to burden consciences with bondage to traditions. They forbid the eating of the blood for a time to avoid giving offense. For in this decree we must always keep in mind that the aim of, the go- what, of what the aim of the gospel is. Scarcely any canon laws are kept with exactness. From day to day many go out to use, even among those who are the most zealous advocates of traditions. In order to treat the conscience properly, we must also realize the canon laws are to be kept without regarding them as necessary. No harm is done to the conscience, even the traditions may go out of use. The bishops might easily retain the legitimate obedience of the people if they would not insist upon the observance of traditions they cannot keep with a good conscience. Instead, they command celibacy and accept no preachers unless they swear that they will teach the gospels, they will not teach the gospel's pure doctrine. The churches are not asking the bishops to restore concord at the expense of their honor, even though it would be proper for good pastors to do this. They ask only that the new bishops release unjust burdens that are new and have been received contrary to the custom of universal church. It may be that in the beginning were the plausible reasons for some of these ordinances, but they are not adapted to latter times. It is also clear that we were adopted through erroneous ideas. Therefore, it would be in keeping with the Pope's mercy to change them now. Such modification does not make the Church's unity. Many human traditions have been changed over time, as the canons themselves show. But if it is possible for the adversaries to change those traditions, which they say is sinful to change, we must follow the apostolic rule which commands us to obey God rather than men. In 1 Peter 5, Peter forbids bishops to lords to be lords and rulers over the Church, is our intention to take oversight away from the bishops, we ask only this thing, that they allow the gospel to be taught purely, and that they relax a few observances that they claim it is sinful to change. If they will not give anything up, it is for them to decide how they will give an account to God for causing schism by their stubbornness. Pastor, I'll give you about 30 seconds. Summarize our time and encourage our listeners in Christ. Civil authorities are given by God. Pastors are also given by God and have a duty. Pastors are to teach and insist on what the scriptures teach. We are to use man-made traditions when and where they serve the gospel, but be willing to do away with them if they obscure the gospel or are no longer helpful. Because what matters is is the conscience and the peace of Christ given in the gospel to sinners. And that's our authority, the authority of pastors, the authority of the church is to give that to sinners who are confessing their sins and to rejoice 
in Christ alone. Pastor Greg Truey of Trinity Lutheran Church in Colcamp, Missouri, clearly confessing the truth of church authority from the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Truey, thank, thank you for being our guest. My pleasure. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.